0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Chris Van Tulliken is a doctor, researcher and a BAFTA award-winning broadcaster, best known for his work on children's television with his twin brother and fellow doctor, Zand. He's the author of a new book for adults, Ultra Processed People, where he explores what ultra-processed foods are doing to our bodies, our societies and the planet. Chris joined us in person at Conway Hall a couple of weeks back in conversation with the ever-brilliant Robin Ince. Enjoy.
3: Thank you so much for coming along. And uh, I'll tell you now, just so you can start thinking about it, in about 50 minutes' time, we will be taking questions from the audience as well. And I think you will have a lot of questions to ask as well, because this is uh, it's a really fascinating book. And we did a monkey cage last week, which kind of dealt a little bit with some of the ideas in it. But before we get on to talk about ultra-processed food, I do want to talk just a little bit about Operation Ouch, because who who watches Operation Ouch? (laughs) Yeah, you must watch You've watched Operation. Yeah, and and I think because this book obviously has has you know some different intentions, but that desire to communicate to a broad audience. What it is to be alive, to be human, to be in so many different situations, I still felt in the book there is still that desire to reach out to people and say, I want to share ideas with you. The thing we try and not do on ouch is give
1: advice. Advice is really problematic. My mother-in-law is a, is a a retired Freudian psychoanalyst. And she has this great line that advice is an uneasy commodity. And the ouch team have a similar view. We're telling people what to do. You don't understand their perspective or their lives, and especially with children. So ouch is about giving kids information, and they can do whatever they want with that information, but they will understand their bodies. and We actually have loads of data that when any of us from very a young age understand our bodies, we do different things with them. So the, the book is... Does, I'm really pleased you noticed that, because the book is trying not to give anyone any advice. There's an invitation mm. in the book, but I, I hope there's no real advice.
3: No, 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 it's entirely devoid of advice, and I'm not sure whether that sells it now. Um, But but People start quietly leaving... Also, to be fair, we know why Freudians don't give advice. It means they can just sit there for 50 minutes while you have to do all the talking. It's an absolute rip-off. I tried that <laughs> therapy once. Um, I also loved, by the way, I read the acknowledgements as well. because I like to. Be, there's, uh, before we get into the book, I loved it. You, you thanked the Sheldrakes, in particular Merlin Sheldrake, who wrote that wonderful book, Entangled Life. And I love this. You said the advice they gave you on writing a book, and I'd just like to know about the, how much you use this process, that Merlin Sheldrake said to you that writing a book is like a party. Everyone needs to know where the toilets are, and everyone needs a drink. So, how do you. In Mer- terms of. Well, Merlin co- pointed out when you're writing a book that there, there will be.
1: You know, sometimes you write with one person in mind, but that person's mother, they, their grandfather, their uncle, their child, they might also be at this party that you're throwing in the book. And so his point was just look after everyone. In every mm. sentence, just go, is everyone. You okay? You've got that? You've got a drink? You know where the Louis? is? Can I get you anything? Can I take your coat? It was a really sweet approach and I think Merlin's book Entangled Life did that very effectively. Whether I've done that so effectively I'm not sure.
3: I think you have. I think it's I mean the I, I suppose before we get into ultra processed food, I suppose the first question is how this became a fascination for you. Because a lot of people who know about your your career so far, it's not so much been in, in kind of look at the nutritional world, in terms of the dietary world. When did this become something that you really have committed a huge amount of time to?
0: So all
3: tele-doctors eventually broadcast about nutrition
1: because, you can, because it's lucrative and because you can have a weight loss
3: app. Um, See, I'm getting really worried. We've said the book's got no advice in it whatsoever... <laughs>
1: the and the it's advice been like, will come with the app, which
3: will get a release with
1: the paperback. <laughs> um, the, I'm an infectious diseases doctor, and I worked a lot in low-income settings in Central Africa and in South Asia. And um, many of my young patients were very severely affected by nutrition, and particularly, not just poor nutrition or malnutrition, but by the aggressive marketing of food that wasn't really food, particularly the infant formula. And the, the, the context for this, many of you may have thought that this was all sorted out in the 70s. There was a, there was a boycott of Nestle, there were Senate hearings, there was a... World Health Organization code brought in to limit the marketing of formulae in in contexts where people have no clean water and where it's impossible to make it up, and where people can't afford it and they can't read the instructions on the box. So there was a huge scandal in the early 80s, and this was thought to be sorted out. And it became very obvious to me that this was not sorted out. This was a problem that was still going on even more aggressively around the world. And so that, that prompted a kind of academic interest in how corporations affect our health. And when you're broadcasting, you're constantly, I think, and you, you find this, you're trying to get to the sort of the next deeper layer of, of causality of why things are happening. And the problem with food, and I had done a bit of broadcasting about food, was the interesting question was not whether it was fat or whether it was sugar, or whether, why we were eating too much. It was, wh- why were we unable to stop eating the food that caused us harm? And so that... that we we made a a programme for the BBC and it was going to be about child obesity and the the experts that I spoke to all said the same thing. They said, look, child obesity is incredibly complex. It's genetic, it's social, it's cultural, it's behavioural, it's to do with personal responsibility but also government policy and it's a real tangled mess. So the programme was going to sew together all these threads and then I read this paper by Carlos Montero, who is the, the main scientist featured in the book, which seemed to... Uh, strip away all the confusion and go we have a working definition of the food that creates diet related disease it's very very simple there is only one explanation and so that felt intuitively satisfying and the book is is as a result of trying to resolve whether that is true now he said that in 2010 and we've had 13 years of fantastically robust evidence where we are now able I, I mean I would say that as a, as a provocation maybe for questions later, I would say that is the single cause of pandemic obesity and it's the single cause of diet-related disease. Now, that's a slight exaggeration, but, so I'm happy to be prodded on that, but that, that's what the book is trying to resolve.
3: Well, actually, I wanted to stay on, on, on the, the baby milk just for a little bit because I, I, was, I don't know if anyone's been up to the Wellcome collection recently and they've got an exhibition all about milk. and um, One of the posters is all about exactly the same problem 80 years ago, where people from impoverished backgrounds were, a lot of them, having to supplement uh, actual breast milk for condensed milk and alternatives, which again were leading to a lot of different health issues, including infant mortality. So that idea that this is not even a new problem, that sometimes the parameters have changed, but the actual, it's 80, 90 years now that this has been going on. So the concept maybe that I found most helpful when you're understanding food,
1: and I think because I started to work with the World Health Organization and UNICEF about infant formula, and I did a lot of broadcasting on it, very quickly I realised that if I wasn't extremely careful with what I said, I would alienate at least half the people in any given room. So I'm I'm a formula baby, my mother fed me formula, we were identical twins, she was a professional mum. Most people in this room would have been brought up with formula, most of us will have fed our children formula. So it's a good example of giving people advice about how to feed their children in the context of modern Britain is really, really difficult. The concept that came out of the, the scandals involving Nestle in the 70s was this idea of commerciogenic malnutrition, that a disease could be driven by a commercial interest. And so the solution was not to advise the parents. It was to limit the marketing and just have this incredible laser focus on the problem is the marketing. And that strips away all the mess, because as long as people aren't being sold false information, they can do what they like. And that approach of, in an entirely non-judgmental way, not saying this, this food is bad, or you're bad for eating it, uh, or you're bad for feeding it to your children, but saying the companies are telling you lies, and it is the, the corporate incentives that are driving the problem, that feels to me a really important organising principle. It's, it's almost if people understand only one thing from this talk and they don't, they don't buy the book, or they buy the book and only understand one thing, it's that diet-related disease, including obesity, is commerciogenic. It's like it
3: is to food, to ultra-processed food, what lung cancer is to, to smoking. But you also talk in the book about, again, sometimes the danger of, of, of the labelling and the use of, of terms like obese and saying someone is obese, and indeed that this appears to be something which is thrown back at the people who are actually suffering from it and saying, well, this is all your fault. So it's something that can be controlled in some ways by marketing, et cetera, to lure people to it, and then say, and it's all your fault as well for believing us.
1: Yeah, I love that. I haven't quite thought about it in that way. I mean, industry are incredibly skillful at partnering with the populations that they affect, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry, who, Are very well regulated, and I'm not an anti-farmer. I'm not an anti-food industry person. I mean, I I hope that's clear in the book. But industry is very good at at building bridges to the people who they're harming and supporting them, and and, you know, nurturing them with charities and saying, "Oh, we we want to protect you from the shame and stigma that people who criticise the food are offering." Because if we're not careful with the message when we criticise the food, we criticise the people. So, so industry are really, really brilliant at. Instrumentalizing sort of words of someone like me against, against myself, really, or turning me as... With Formula, it was, there was a, a brilliant moment on Twitter where I, I criticised the Royal College. I'm going to get in trouble here, aren't I? Let's wait and see. Looking, looking around anxiously for a publicist or an agent. Um, I was looking for someone in a crown. <laughs> So I, I said something about the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, who at the time were accepting money from both Nestle and Danon, and very quickly there was a brilliant tweet from a doctor who was very involved with the infant formula industry, who said, you know, breastfeeding is a very complicated issue, Chris, and those of us in the profession understand this. And it was, it was so beautiful, because in, I'd gone from being someone who was uh, you know, a defender of, of, of parents and a critique of industry to someone who was ignorant, who wasn't in the profession, who, um, who didn't understand complexity, and that was done through a through an industry comms team. So it's it's. If we're not really
3: precise about what we say, we, we will not just upset people, but our words will be very quickly turned against us. But also, going back again to the obesity thing, which is, I know Sophie Hagen, the comedian, wrote a book about kind of the, the demonization of people who are overweight. I mean, this is it does seem that in the introduction of the book, you do look at that as that we need to find ways of viewing these issues without dehumanising or demonising those people who are suffering from them. I mean, this is something I'd be really curious to hear from anyone in the room about. Does anyone
1: listen to the Maintenance Phase podcast? R- really? Not a single... Does anyone? Someone must. No one listens to... You all no, have there to was go... one woo. There was one... Oh, there's is there two woos room? now, it's two building. Woos. OK. You must all go and listen to the Maintenance Phase podcast. So it's presented by um, Michael Hobbs and Aubrey Gordon. And Aubrey Gordon lives with um, a, a significant level of obesity, and she's a fat activist. And so I phoned her to say, look, how do I, for example, discuss obesity as a problem? Like, when we say there is an obesity crisis, that's awful for most of us. I live with overweight. Do you know your BMI? Do you know if you live with overweight? I don't know. So I, I, I would imagine so. I am at the low end like of clinical overweight. And, you know, statistically, it's likely that half the people in the room are overweight or, or, or live with obesity, have overweight or have obesity. And... Um, So Aubrey didn't couldn't answer the question and she just said you you have to sort of understand there probably isn't any way of talking about this without really traumatising affected people. So if you live with obesity. So I I try and say, try and really rigorously say that people live with obesity. It's a thing you have, it's like you might live with HIV or diabetes or, you know, any other aspect of your character. It's not your identity, it's just a thing about you. And it's the thing about you, I think, that you can, you can discard. You could live with obesity when you're seeing your doctor and talking about a particular aspect of the problem, but it's not a thing you have to carry around with you all day. So, so obesity as a disease, I, I say it is a disease some of the time that you might want to own when you go and ask for a prescription of semaglutide, for example, or a Zempic. But you might not want to think of yourself as diseased when you're in the pub enjoying a drink, eating some crisps, uh, or as those things as, as agents of disease. So I, we, I don't think we have a language around this, but um, I, I think it's going to happen quickly. I think... I mean, we, we, I can I say this? The, I mean, the other night I was a bit surprised, maybe, at some of the jokes. Oh, from... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, so we recorded a thing, and there was some... There were some jokes, and I sensed from the audience, there was a joke about a solution to pandemic obesity being to make doors narrower. And there was that kind of response. There was a sort of... Ah, ah. Um, and that... I was really warmed by that, that people, you know, they weren't, there wasn't a lot of guffawing. And I think it was done with a certain Can I make it clear, by the way, it wasn't me doing the jokes? It, was, just saying... it was Brian. No, it wasn't Brian yeah. it wasn't. It was... I think it was done with a lot of love and irony from someone who is generally a really brilliant person. It was Harry Hill, who's, who's, who's brilliant. So, no, no, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I, I, th- no, I
3: yeah. think he was doing it... He was doing... It in he a was funny. He was playing of a, with something. The, the char- yeah, a, a, a bit like, you know, you know uh, there's only one way to side it, fight. You know, it, was, it was that kind of playground. And thing. he was but throwing me a thing.
1: Right. Like, I think he was yeah.
3: allowing me to go, well, that's an
0: interesting yeah, yeah, idea,
1: yeah.
3: Harry. Uh,
1: let me be really boring about this for a moment.
0: Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now, in hardback, ebook and audio.
3: Yeah. But but that is... I, I wanted also to get on to the... Uh, now, as we know, twin studies are very, very hard to get through an ethics committee. But fortunately, you and Zander have just... happened to do them anyway, didn't on my you? Own ethics. Committee. this is part, it seems to be, of the story that led to this book, is uh, when you two... When Zander when was out in the USA and when you were in the UK and having been, I believe, you know, very similar in weight, etc., Can you tell us a little bit about what happened with that particular twin study? So the the twin study
1: of N equals one or two, depending on how you look at twins. Um, So Zand and I have been the same weight our whole lives, because we grew up in the same environment, we have the same genes. I've been tested for my genetic risk factors for obesity, so you can do a genetic test and identify little changes in genes that put you at risk. And I have all of the major, the, the most significant ones. And you can tell if you do, because if you are someone who thinks about dinner at breakfast, if, if you'll be sitting over breakfast going, mm, what's for tea? Yeah. <laughs> this is the only question I ever ask my wife. If that, Then you have all of those genetic risk factors for obesity. And um, I think Giles Yo does as well. Uh, so if you're a foodie and you like food, and you will know people who have no interest in food, and you will eat food off their plates when you go and eat meals together if you know them well enough. and uh, uh, And... So, so Zand moved to the States and had a, ha, it was a very stressful situation um, and he was starting a new degree and very stressful things had happened in his life and he put on an enormous amount of weight. So he was living above a burger bar and he was just immersed in American life running a high, a high stress level and he put on about 30 kilos and he became significantly obese. And um, for a decade we lived with, with the biggest weight differential between us of any pair of identical twins studied in the UK. Um, According to Tim Spector, who'd kind of weighed and measured, measured us, and um, so I nagged my brother about this for 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 a decade, and then then we had COVID, and he probably because of his weight had a very severe COVID infection. He got an infection of his heart, and he developed this arrhythmia, and he had to come to. You may, did anyone see the documentary where he came into my hospital? And this was real. You know, we don't fake all these things. But what wasn't real is he, his arm was on, he developed this heart arrhythmia and he woke up and he, he couldn't really breathe and he, he, he wasn't perfusing the rest of his body properly. And he phoned me and he said, look, I'm, I'm going to the Homerton." And I said, well, don't go to the Homerton. I'm in A&E with a camera crew at UCH, so why don't you come here? Sort of <laughs> a bit, you know, you must sometimes have this moment where you're, you're wearing your broadcaster hat mm-hmm. going, this is going to be awesome. And you're yeah. also wearing your... You're wearing your twin brother hat going, I actually want you to be in, in sort of with me and my team. And then you're, also, uh, then you're also a clinician going up. Anyway, so he came in and we stopped his heart and restarted it. And it's actually, they, I'm sure someone here has had, um, you may, have, someone here will have been cardioverted. It's quite common. It was good telly because there's a very long flat line. When you stop the heart, there's a, that proper bee for about five seconds and then you get the blip. It's
3: lovely. Um,
0: you
1: but
3: really I was... ruined that moment for me, because I thought that was the most amazing <laughs> bit of television, and that idea that you were making sure that flatline... No, no, hang on, hang on, let the flatline for a little bit longer. <laughs> no, the
1: flatline is this hard. <laughs> no, and I was... Te- I'm telling it as a funny story, obviously, because I'm here with Robin Ince, and I've got to say something funny. But, um, no, I was... It, you know Tears poured, pouring down my face. They, they, it wasn't chopped onions or anything. No, I was, I was very upset. So I, I, I doubled down on the nagging, to the point of making a podcast bought by Radio 4, which, again, some of you would have listened to, Addicted to Food, and the podcast, really, at the heart of it, I was going to make him thin, and I sent him to this incredible behaviour change expert, Alistair Kant, who works in Cambridge, and I, so I phoned up Alistair and said, Alistair, you've got you've to make my brother thin, and Alistair said, I don't need to speak to your brother, I need to speak to you, and I was like, no, 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 you've missed, that. sorry. You, No, no, I'm the thin one. You haven't understood. He goes, no, no, you are the problem. And this, I think, is very important because there will be many people here who are deeply worried about someone they love, a partner, a child, a parent, and they will be deliberately nagging or food-restricting. They may be tutting or just cutting their eyes or sucking in their breath when 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 the pudding arrives, as my... As our mum did for many years, and um, for Zahn to lose the weight was to lose an argument with me. And it was when I I properly let that go that he he was able to to sort of grasp control of it. So that, that's that's another quite important moment in the book and in my life was sort of going oh, I, I I cannot own his problems, and I can't own any of my patients' problems, and I can't own the reader's problems. So the the book is very much sort of going you if you are reading this and you. Aren't living with obesity? You must not nag those who are, and if you are, you have to sort of wrestle control away from all the people trying to control you. That was a hell of a long answer. Sorry. about
3: No, that. I like long answers. It means I can just sit back and relax. The um, but no, it's it's. I mean, I, I I want to get back to that as well. But first of all, I suppose we should actually get to what ultra-processed food. Is. We're going to and get to the end and not talk about either the book or the food. or Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we've definitely we've done yeah. the book. That's, that's over and done with now. That's fine. Um, but ultra processed food, th- th- this is what is the difference between. I was thinking today as I was eating. So this morning I had fruit and fiber with a little sprinkling of crunchy nut on top. I do a little breakfast cereal cocktail in the morning. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I've had two corn eggs. Um, and uh, corn I've, eggs. Corn eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not. They're not eggs that have been laid by corn. <laughs> uh, they're, they're a mixture of kind of uh, egg and and corn. Uh, they're uh, actually corn turds. Uh, yeah, 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 the, yeah. That's, that's very, this the... again is one of the reasons that the food industry didn't employ you in the end. I'm thinking, call them corn turds. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. We've got other people to see. Um, <laughs> and, and then I've had one of those kind bars. It's called kind, so it must be. Yes. So, right, how much of that was... Other antropos- bars
1: are available. Um, now, the, the fruit and fibre, I, I, I can't off the top of my head say. I, I believe it is. I think it will have right. a flavouring or an extract. If anyone wants to Google, if you, if you use open food facts, or you can just go to Sainsbury's or Tesco and look at the ingredients list if someone wants to do that while I'm talking. Um, those of you already on your phones could... Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's all ultra-processed. So ultra-processed food is... It, there's this very, very long formal scientific definition. So it, is, it isn't a casual definition. It's not like it's super-processed. It's not junk food. It's, it's formally defined scientific category. And um, it's, there's a long definition because it has to encompass a lot of different processes and products. But it boils down to if it's wrapped in plastic and it contains one ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, then it is ultra-processed. So these ingredients might be glucose syrup. You don't usually have those. They might be xanthan gum. They might be mono and diacetyl tartaric acid esters of fat, fatty acids. They might be um, emulsifiers. They might be stabilizers. They might be xanthan gum, guar gum, carrageenan. So... Um, these ingredients are partly the problem but they're a sign of lots of other processing. So the, the way it worked was many people in the room either themselves or their parents will have had an anxiety in the 80s about food processing. We, there was this idea of like oh processed food is bad. The problem with that is that humans have been processing food for well over a million years. Cooking is processing, we've been pounding, and grinding and extruding and Mainly female scientists for the last, say, 100 millennia have been doing this incredible uh, effort at recombining molecules, modifying them with heat and fermentation, smoking them, salting them, curing them, and developing modern food. And they've done it because of, of love and a need to nurture their family, their community, their friends... And that's how food, human food evolved. We're the only species that does process food. And we have to process our food. So compared to a pig of about the same size, our digestive tract is roughly half as long. So we have, we have very small teeth, we have tiny little jaws, we have a short digestive tract, because we digest food out of our bodies in our, with our blenders and our knives and our, um, our, our cooking pots. That's all part of digestion. It makes nutrients available. So processing is fine. We've been doing it for millions of years. In Brazil, Carlos Montero and his team there noticed this transition where in 1990 obesity was essentially non-existent and by 2005-ish obesity was the public health problem and it happened like that. And no one could explain why because people were buying less fat and less sugar and by every traditional metric diets were getting healthier. And so what Montero, when they looked at all the national survey, the food survey data is they noticed that people were buying industrially produced versions of traditional food. So they were buying ready meals, uh, emulsified bread, biscuits, cakes, and candies. All things they had had previously, but these were things wrapped in praf- pra- packets. So the team developed this definition to test the hypothesis that there was something about industrial processing that was harmful. And this is what my mum wanted to do in the 80s, when she was sort of saying junk food is bad for you, and we, we were smart, you know, I have two brothers, and we'd go, yeah, but your food is full of butter and fat and salt, and so it's actually this, and we'd look up the ingredients on McDonald's and say, your food is actually fattier than McDonald's, so how do you explain that, Mum? Why aren't we allowed McDonald's? And so Carlos Montero formalised this idea, the hypothesis has been tested, it was done in an open-minded way, and we now have an answer. So it is the category of food that drives uh, Drives all this illness and death, which I can I can talk about if you want.
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, what is it with uh, a, a, again going back to Zand about? the reason that he put on so much weight, what is it about ultra-processed foods? So it's not just, I mean I think it is a great, that, that way you explain it It has ingredients that are not in your kitchen, like you talk about that with ice cream for instance, yeah. where you know, really high quality ice cream is kind of made of, you know, cream and sugar and, you know, egg whites, whatever it is, I don't make my own ice cream, I apologise and then the one that's, that's one pound a tub is made out of things that are definitely not in, yeah. in, in your cupboard but what's going on that is leading to, so we're both eating ice cream, you've got, I tell you what, you'll have the cheap one, I'll have the nice one, we've got the same number of scoops initially, What's, what's making it different for you putting on weight and me not? So if we just look at weight gain, there are characteristics of
1: ultra processed food, probably the most important is that it's almost all very soft. So. If you buy a loaf of sourdough, I'm going to dodge the ice cream for a second question for a second because there are some important differences that affect other things. But if you buy a loaf of sourdough bread or rye bread and you eat it, your mouth gets tired, yeah, you, and you can't eat it very quickly. If you buy a loaf of Hovis seven seed sensations or Warburtons, Whole, like the, the bread that we all think of as healthy, it's full of, you know, brown bits and chewy bits. Uh, you can eat that bread twice as quickly. And this is true of almost all ultra-processed products, is is they are softer than their whole food equivalents. And so uh, they're also incredibly dry. And the dryness is important for shelf life. um, And the dryness sort of comes out of the processing. So the softness, the the dryness means that they're very energy dense. So per gram, they contain many more calories than real food. Real food is a banana, a steak, milk, butter. It's all got a lot of water in it. A a McDonald's burger or or a Cadbury's Bar or, I'm going to get a pickle with these brand names, but any ultra-processed product has almost no moisture content at all. What this means is the softness means you swallow it quickly and you get a lot of calories very, very quickly. Now inside you, you've got a, got a set of very well-evolved systems that, that tell you when to stop eating. Obesity is non-existent in wild animals. They, they just stop eating when they're full. The same happens to humans if we eat real food. Ultra-processed food, you eat it so your, your hormones don't tell you you're full until you've consumed twice as many calories as you would with real food. So that's one mechanism that leads to weight gain. We then have emulsifiers affecting your microbiome and inflaming your gut in ways that seem to drive weight gain. We have the flavorings and the flavor enhancers and the particular ratios of fat, salt and sugar all of which also seem to be very appetite-stimulating in ways that we can't seem to recreate in the home kitchen. We've got illusions in the mouth, so you might have some calories from a carbohydrate, but you'll have extra sweetness from an artificial sweetener, which may boost your insulin level. This is a simple explanation, but it's something like they will boost your insulin level beyond the carbohydrate that you've eaten, that will lower your blood sugar down to lower than it was before you ate and you will end up feeling hungrier. So the artificial sweeteners are their own particular set of problems. All of those individual mechanisms are less interesting than the purpose of the food. So where is the the purpose of the food made by scientists over the last few millennia working in in caves and and tents and and early hominid encampments all over the world? The purpose was nourishment and love. This food is all made by a very small number of companies who have very serious obligations to their owners, and their owners are broadly our pensions. And so there is this relentless, very understandable pressure to generate profit, but also growth. And so the food must be made from the cheapest possible ingredients, and it has to be formulated to be consumed to excess. So broadly, if we look at a cereal from your childhood and mine, like um, Cocoa Pops has been around for a very long time, the cocoa Pops won't be quite the same now. It will have been iterated, developed, marketed, tested, and at every testing stage, one of the questions that the cereal scientists will ask is, how much do people eat? And if people eat 5% of box A of the formulation, then they eat more than they do of box B, box A is the one that goes on the shelf. So, And this happens each year, year in, year out. And so we end up with these products that are through a series of little dials been adjusted, ingredients here, softness, texture changes, changes in the colouring on the packets, flavouring changes, changes in the marketing campaigns. All of it leads to things that are fundamentally addictive. And I'd be very curious to know, some people here will be unable to recognise the idea of food addiction. It will not be a thing that affects you or is even imaginable to you. In the same way, actually, that alcohol addiction is not imaginable to me. I, I, I could never be have a problem relationship with alcohol, I have no interest in it, it doesn't thrill me, I can have a pint, I never, never want a second one. Um, for those that live with it, we, know, we have lots of data that the food, food is as addictive as nicotine, as drugs of abuse, as alcohol, as heroin, um, it's just as hard to quit, and the things that people are addicted to are always ultra-processed. So I, I, I would, perhaps not always, but almost always. So if, if people in the audience are struggling with food, my bet would be the items that you find that you wrestle with and that you finish an entire pack when you set out to eat one, they will always be ultra processed. And you will be having this bizarre sensation that, that I've had very frequently of putting another one in your mouth as if through some as if someone else is feeding you. And so so it is the commercial pressures that derive the development of addictive substances. And they are everywhere. So I like counting opportunities to buy particular products at airports. So when I flew recently to Australia for Operation Ouch, I just counted the number of occasions I could buy a Coke from leaving my taxi to boarding the plane, where there is also more Coke. And between taxi and plane, there were 50 separate occasions, like uh, vending machines, shops, that I could buy a Coca-Cola. Or, and I could have done it with any other product. And if those were cigarettes and you were a smoker you'd be going insane if you were trying to quit.
3: Also finding healthy food, I remember when I was on a vegan diet, and uh, I think it was at Birmingham Airport, and trying to find something which I could eat. Eventually I found something which I think was called Cup of Leaves, which is in (laughs) Boots. And that's literally what it was, just a cup with some leaves in, which is not nearly (laughs) as filling as I'd hoped as I mulched through it. be but it, it, but, hallucinogenic yeah they, uh, oh, these leaves are much better than I thought. I mean, no play needed i'm off um, <laughs> the, uh, but I, I, I wonder is because this is I think a political book. I think there's no way around that. I mean we were talking about this before which is and it's important to me you know at one point what you've just been saying you kind of sum it up in the book by saying it has changed from the flow of nutrition to the flow of money so do you feel that there is a level of should we say, cognitive dissonance, perhaps in the food industry, which those sitting around are thinking, no, 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 we're just making things that are more delicious and finding the things that you can highlight which look like they're healthy options, when in fact there should be a, a, a greater scrutiny within that industry on what they're actually doing uh, to people and to society. So I I spoke to loads of people, loads of lovely people who work
1: at the big transnational food corporations. I spoke to people who work in the banks that serve those companies, and they were all super nice. And they all, and I spoke to lots of people who'd retired, they all at some level knew that they were generating a lot of harm and disease. And I spoke to everyone from the the people Driving, driving the bars around from supermarket to supermarket, trying to get uh, Tesco and Sainsbury's to stock the new NutriGrain bars that had been developed in the 90s, all the way through to the CEO of one of our largest ice cream companies. And they all said the same thing, which is that they, it is simply impossible when you work at these companies to have a regard for human health. That's not... Other than as a sort of, we're going to have to service that ambition in our users, you can't, when you're developing the product, make a thing that is less edible. And in the end, that has to be the goal of food, that when you make food at home, it is less edible. And that's a really good thing. It's not less delicious. It's not less palatable, if you're anyway decent at it. But it, you, eat, you eat less of it. And if you are a scientist developing, uh, whether it's ice cream or frozen pizza at a food company, and you make ice cream that people eat a bit less of, uh, that ice cream won't go to market and you won't stay on the food development team. And that's just the savage pressure that is brought essentially by our pension. So I was very sympathetic to people and people, some of my colleagues who work in public health policy feel I let the companies off a bit. But when you understand it from their perspective, we can rail against these companies and, and we must call them out as evil some of the time. Some of what I talk a lot about Nestle in the book and some of what they do is... Is, is very nasty and it's important to call it out uh, in, in, a, in a careful, legal way. Um, uh, um, but that's not going to do much good if keep, people keep buying the products. And so uh, th- th- there are only two groups of people, as I see it, that can really control the problem, and that, that is the government and, and doctors. And, and doctors particularly have a choice. We, we are paid in a different way. We don't actually need... To partner with these food companies to launder their misinformation to support them in their agendas to sell these products, whether we 're doing it as influencers whether we 're doing it as, as sort of media doctors, or whether we 're doing it by setting up uh, the global energy balance network for coca cola and spreading the idea that you can go for a run and burn off extra calories, which isn 't true so we, we can sort of naive uh, it 's important to keep critiquing the industry that is that is a way of keeping up pressure, but it 's naive to think that um, we can do that without, without pressurising governments. I, I mean, I don't see it as political in the sense of it's not party political. No. It, it's just there are sort of truths about the way that things affect the human body. And these truths are cleverly suppressed by people who make money from suppressing them. And so we must make sure those truths are widely known.
3: Well, I think there is, a, again, on the political side, I was fascinated to know that we uh, in, in the UK have the lowest expenditure on food apart from the USA. That, and that, as you say in the book, is partly because transport is so expensive, housing is so expensive, that, again, this seems to be, and I might be jumping to conclusions here, but that, that seems to also help. The ultra processed food market by having this position where we don't have the ability to spend as much money. What's it? Fourteen percent, I think, in quite a few European countries. Yeah. of, of, of in the UK, the we spend eight percent yeah. in the UK. I mean, well, it, well we spend seven or eight percent, but that that
1: was a few years ago. I, I would guess that right now we are spending less of our household mm. budget because because energy is so expensive. So that has a couple of implications. The book is essentially redundant, in the sense that. Uh, if you solved poverty and inequality, which are solvable problems, other countries have much lower levels, you would deal with with a huge amount of the problem. So when people have money, and I'm guessing broadly making some assumptions, many of the people in this room will be able to spend more than 6% of their income on food. When people have money, they don't buy very much ultra-processed food. That's just the sort of raw facts of it. So people don't really want to buy this food. And the industry and the people who support them will tell this story that this food is fun, it's enjoyable, it's a treat, and yet when we when we can afford not to buy it, almost everyone doesn't, and we feel better for not buying it. So it's enjoyable a little bit like cigarettes are enjoyable. If you speak to smokers, a few of them will report enjoying every cigarette, but the vast majority of them are servicing some more complicated need. So one of the things that flows from that is if you solve... Poverty and inequality, you deal with most of the problem. It also means you have to be careful how you solve it because you can't tax this food because it's the only available affordable food for most people. And so you have to have these very nuanced solutions and you're really at every moment at risk of generating huge amounts of stigma and, and further disadvantaging people who, who don't have any choice
3: but to eat this food. And that, that is actually sort of most people. Um, In terms of government policies, I wonder, is there an example anywhere in the world where we see really positive government policies in terms of getting healthier eating and getting a healthier population? There is nowhere in the world that this isn't relentlessly getting worse. So we see
1: in mainland Europe that there are some countries that have very high incomes where they, they eat much less of this, so Switzerland. And we see in in some countries with very strong food cultures that have a very strong national identity around food, some of the Mediterranean countries, they do eat much less. In all of those countries, the rates are going up very rapidly. In Asia, the rates are going up very very rapidly. In Latin America, there are a few countries where the transition has been so enormous and fast. So I spoke spoke to a a friend who works in Mexico and... um, she works for Cargill, or she was working for Cargill, she's now a public health academic, and she said every single person in her community had a close friend or relative who'd had an amputation in the last 10 years, and it, it went from diet related disease not being in any way visible uh, in, 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 her, in her town in Mexico to, to it being absolutely universal, and it was, it was largely driven by the soft drinks industry in, in that situation. And so that the rapidity of that transition in, in Brazil and, in, and in, in Chile and in Mexico has led to activists being able to sort of go, look, you, this hasn't, it's not boiling the frog. It hasn't happened in this invisible way that it's happened in this country where we, we suddenly, a few years ago, went, oh, my goodness, there is a, there is a big problem here. It, it, we didn't notice it happening at all. We didn't collect any data on it. So in those countries, there are some, some positive things. In Chile, for example, they are labelling... Uh, food using black hexagons, and there's this really cheering result that, that I think, I talk about this in the book, that when you label food with black hexagons, kids tell their parents not to buy it. So it's, it's like many of us probably told our parents not to smoke. I remember saying that to my dad, that we, kids will
3: become activists, kids don't want to eat garbage the whole time. That's fascinating because Pythagoras considered the hexagon to be the forbidden shape. And oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, just thought. I'd, just in case there are a few geometry fans in, just thought I'd throw that in. But it was. Um, what about in terms of? Because I know there's been a lot of debate about this. But from an evidence-based perspective, what is your thought on this idea of placing the calories uh, on on foods as the as the kind of warning which people have been talking about uh, here? And I know that some people say, for instance, those with various different forms of possible eating disorder, it's not going to help. It's not going to be. In fact, anything it might make it worse. I think putting
1: calories on food is, there's no evidence it doesn't eat good. I think it's, it's probably better to have more information on the food than less. But, but good luck to anyone who tries to eat to numbers. So the, the way we think about nutrition in this com- country, if you try and go, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really engage with government advice, the NHS Eat Well plate, the, the National Dietary Guidelines, there's a 12-page document with, all, with, with it all laid out. I'm going to eat according to these numbers, and I'm going to feed my children according to these numbers, you will find it absolutely impossible. So most of the food we eat is not labelled. It simply doesn't tell you how much salt is in it per gram. If you, want, if, you, if you have an ideal food like Cocoa Pops or any breakfast cereal, the information is all there. So you can get a balance, you can pour out a weighed bowl and only eat that, and then you can keep track of your salt and saturate and sugar content for the rest of the day. I mean, it's not possible to do. Humans don't eat to numbers. And the absurd thing is to think that we need to. So as I say, throughout the animal kingdom, wild animals have no obesity at all. None. There is a very strange paper that claims there are exceptions to this. And it's uh, written by uh, someone who's funded by Kraft, Heinz, and Coca-Cola. <laughs> and obviously making the case that wild animals become obese, and so it's, it's, the obesity epidemic is a, is a, a, pandemic is, is a mystery, is, is very valuable to the food industry. Anyway, he's been largely discredited, and, and the paper cited actually no instances of wild animals. It cited urban animals becoming overweight, and urban animals are discarded ultra-processed <laughs> food yeah. that the rest of us haven't, been, uh, have, haven't eaten. So. Um, So we don't need to eat numbers. Broadly, especially children, I need to say uh, there there are sort of two different things here, but if children uh, eat food, processed food, cheese, milk, butter, you know, whole grain cereals, if they just eat the food that people ate a long time ago, uh, they don't develop obesity in any significant numbers at all. Human obesity is complex. There has been for a long time low rates of obesity, around 1% but this problem where one in five children leave primary school living with obesity, that is due to ultra-processed food. Has anyone heard anything I've said? I've just moved this mic. (laughs) Um, So so you don't need to eat to numbers if you eat real food. Now, there is an important exception to that, a caveat to that. So a friend of mine, Barry Smith, he's a professor at... um, You'll hear him on Radio 4. He's a wine expert. He's a philosophy professor, and he is an ultra processor So he worked with companies telling them how to modify flavour experiences to drive excess consumption. And so we collaborated on several things, and he's now stopped doing that. Uh, but he quit ultra-processed food and immediately went to... We share a deli. There's this fancy deli near us, and they sell all this amazing stuff. So he went to the deli and he bought all this you know, Iberico ham and cheese and sourdough bread and for weeks sort of tucked into all this and put on uh, several kilos. So. It's, it is possible when you are, you know, in, in middle age uh, to, to gain weight eating real food. That's, that's ancient. And we, we all need, the, you know, there is dietary advice about what to eat. But uh, particularly in children uh, and in most of us, it's the ultra-processed food that's driving this very high, high level of obesity.
3: But are we looking at a time where what we do we will still need ultra-processed food, but the ultra-processed food to be ultra-processed in a way that does not have the or, or will that all be the definition? Yeah. So
1: could we could we hyper-process our way out of the problem? So this what we're seeing, and I, I spoke to my publisher earlier about I have this sense that there is a sort of gathering effort because the book has been very well publicised by Penguin, and I'm starting to get this little pushback from people very connected to the food industry, and a couple of big papers have come out uh, critiquing the book in anticipation of what it might say, critiquing this hypothesis. Um, One of the main proposals is, well, this food is essential, it's cheap, so if the food is too soft, we'll make it chewier. Um, If it's too uh, artificially flavoured, we'll naturally flavour it. You know, that we, can we hyper-process it? If, if it's damaging the microbiome, we'll put in prebiotics and probiotics and other kind of biotics. I would say that the major problem to that is that if food, food is soft, not simply as an accident of it all being extruded and macerated, it's, it's soft because that's what we like, because that's what sells well. Um, and chewy bread doesn't sell, so that, that food, the chewiness isn't going to fly. And if you make it wet, it, it won't stay around, and you reduce the energy density, it won't be as addictive. So most of, the thing, most of the way the food is designed, there isn't much wiggle room around. And I think, why would you leave in the emulsifier, damaging the microbiome, and put in a bug, when you could take out both? So I think those arguments are, are spurious and
3: they, they won't work, but they are very persuasive for many people. I disagree with you on chewy bread. I'm much for a much fur chewy bread. I hate, I, I, that's my most boring middle aged thing that I do. You can't even spread butter that's meant to be spread straight from the fridge on this bread. It has no tenacity at all. Look, I obviously agree with you. I think probably most people here do, but you have to learn.
1: Uh, many people here will enjoy bitter things and crunchy veg and raw things and, you know, odd cheeses. We, we can learn that all this stuff is good for us and we can learn to enjoy it, but you you have to, to go through a bit of a, a process to get there. Uh, and part of the reason you enjoy the chewy bread is it, is it has some magical quality for you that you think it is in some way, I suspect,
3: associated with life or your values. Oh, thank heavens, I thought you were going to go to all Freudian there again. <laughs> the, uh, um, the, uh, I, I wanted to just ask you... Is actually, soft bread for crisp sandwiches. There's a lot of ultra-processing going on there, but yeah, I'm not giving them up. But, um, <laughs> This is you went on a diet. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no, no. No, no. no but you went on a diet of ultra processed food, but for a month. But before that, you had to have a month of no ultra processed food. So, first of all, what were the what were the things that shocked you, and what were the hard what was the hardest part of going on the no ultra processed food diet? So, when the first time I washed out ultra processed food, and I
1: had to go on this, I think it was like six weeks. Partly it was, it was expensive, it was extremely inconvenient, because I simply couldn't get lunch in the hospital, or in Pret, or in Leon, or in McDonald's, or in Wasabi, or in Itsu, or in Planet Organic, even. I mean, you, you just couldn't buy lunch other than, like, a handful of nuts. So it, that was frustrating. And I craved these foods that I actually hadn't eaten in a long time. I was craving KFC and McDonald's. So there was a strange sort of psychological effect, where the forbidden fruit effect was really, really powerful. And then I went on this diet, at, at which we, we filmed for the BBC, and which is kind of the, the core of the book. And it, it felt important for it to be the core because something very sort of magical happened to me. I, maybe because I'm... Uh, maybe I won't delve into why, but, but for long, a long time, I felt very addicted to particular foods to the point where I would, I would binge. Uh, and I would binge so much, I would, I would really binge until I was sick. Now, th- this... I never thought of this as being particularly disordered and it didn't affect my life. I was being sick not for weight loss reasons but because I had simply eaten too much food and I wasn't going to be able to to sleep. And my brothers and I would, would both do this. And my wife thought it was odd and troubling but it didn't happen very often. And it was a bit like some people here may recognise sort of over drinking, you know, when you're young and you sort of go, I'd better, I'd better be sick because otherwise I'm going to have a, have a terrible day. So um, I had this quite addicted relationship with it. I then craved it. And then midway through the diet, I was talking to all these, these experts. We were building a research programme. So I was talking to collaborators in Brazil and in the States really about what we should be measuring in this study that we were designing and how the food we thought affected us. And I, I was talking to a collaborator called Fernanda Rauber. She's on Carlos Montero's team in Brazil. And we, we were talking about the food. And every time I said food, she kept going, it's not food, Chris. It's an industrially produced edible substance. And she did this. It was like a tick. And it became quite irritating. I was like, Fernanda, all right, fine. But could we use the shorthand food, please? Because we're trying to design a thing here and get it granted. Anyway, we had this nice conversation, hung up. Uh, and I ordered KFC for dinner because I was then on this ultra-processed diet that I go through in the book, and I started eating these KFC hot wings, which have been my favourite food uh, for my for my whole life since I ate them, and they were absolutely disgusting. They tasted the same, but I, I was unable to finish them. And she had sort of released me from this this prison. It was it was she'd given me this incredible gift, and since then I have never been able to enjoy any of it. And I've had moments of craving that have now sort of dissipated, but uh, quitting it proved very easy. So the, the book is trying... The invitation of the book is that you eat while you read. Like, there's no advice. Like, don't, don't quit. I, don't stop eating your crisp sandwiches. I only ask Robin that you read about the emulsifiers in the bread and the flavour enhancers in the crisps while you eat the crisp sandwich. And um, and this is a very well-evidenced approach. So it sounds possibly a bit hokey, but this is the... Has anyone here ever used the Alan Carr easy way to quit smoking? A couple of, couple of hands going up. So this is, this, is, this is the only self-help book which the World Health Organization has in their quit-smoking tool pit. And there are loads of studies on it. And it works better than nicotine gum. It works better than almost any other cessation program. And it, the book is the same thing. You smoke while you read about how bad smoking is. And it just says keep smoking. It never says... More or less, it doesn't say stop smoking. And by the end of the book, most people most people stop. Few people go back, but it's an effective intervention. So that that's what the book is unashamedly trying to offer people
3: Did and I you, answer the question. Well, yes. And the uh, um, what was though? Wh- because when you are eating your ultra processed diet, to be honest, a lot of it seems disgusting. And there's a uh, I won't say which supermarket it is. There's a supermarket that does a. Uh, a, a three part tray for a complete breakfast. They all do it, but yes. Right. I mean, it's not my world, so I it's just because I don't eat meat, so I don't th- th- that kind of thing. So, but that TV dinner for breakfast, can you? And it's interesting because you have a couple of links in, in the book where it turns out that fascism was also involved in the creation of certain foodstuffs. And of course, Tucker Carlson is the uh, uh, his money all comes from TV dinners. That's his, his family are a TV dinner dynasty. So there is a very close link between the rise of fascism that could and whatever you're eating. Uh, oh, I love that. Yeah, the, uh, put it in the paperback version. The, um, Not that we should be saying Tucker but, but Carlson yeah, is if, a fascist, of course. Oh, Other no, no, I see, do you know available. what? If that's the hill that I die on, <laughs> I'm prepared to go to court. There's quite a list on Tucker Carlson. The, uh, I can give you a whole list of fascists, but I won't do all of them now. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, I, 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 what's, is there one bit of... When you would actually there, you know, when you're doing that, that reading the draft for the, the final time, was there a bit of food you looked saying, oh, I could still go back to that?
1: One of the things that surprised... There were several things writing the book that I didn't know at all when I started. I thought I sort of would just write this very easy book that I'd made a teleprogram about, and there were several things I didn't know. One of the things I didn't know is that wanting and liking are entirely neurologically distinct things, and you can train humans and rats to... Want things they don't like and like things they don't want, and the wanting is the is the crucial bit that's hard to get rid of because the wanting is the the label that you attach to the addictive substance, and and that's why we can all have this experience. Has anyone had the experience of wanting a thing, engaging the thing repeatedly, and not liking the thing? So smokers will often talk, drinkers will talk about this, uh, and and lots of lots of addicts will talk about this. So. Uh, I would want take away uh, uh, Chinese food, and I would order it, and I would start eating it, and I would have to throw it all away. And that happened several times. So w- I would find the app was still giving me a buzz. I would I would scroll the app in anticipation. I would order the food. It would arrive. It would the, the ritual of addiction would be played out, but I wasn't actually able to to stomach it. I'd stopped liking it. And so we we still haven't disentangled what was going on in in my head because I was brain scanned before the diet, during the diet, after the diet, and then again eight weeks later. And we saw this massive increase in connectivity between the addiction bits of my brain and the uh, automatic behaviour bits of the brain. And these were scans done by the, the... physics department at Queen Square at the Neurology Institute there that, that we work with at UCL so these were very, this was very robust investigations this wasn't just a, a coincidence it wasn't sort of noisy data it was very clear so Claudia who interpreted the scan said we have no idea how to explain why you now don't like the food but you still want it especially because your brain scan hasn't changed Anyway, so yes, I did have that, that experience,
3: yes very interesting. we're going to throw it out to the audience now who would like to uh, ask a question? We have two sets of roving mics on the left and the right. If you just pop your hand up when anyone is uh... I mean I'm fascinated as well on the psychological side of uh, you know th- like we did a wine program on Monkey Cage and you know that thing which you talk about a little in the book. If you remove the, the visual clues, you can 't tell the difference between red and white which yes. is really and Brian yeah, yeah. was furious yeah. because he thinks he's a wine connoisseur so yeah. he had to come up with loads of alibis no I mean no. I, yeah no there's lots of papers on red and
1: white wine taste exactly the same yeah
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> right well, have we got a have we got a is
1: question yes it. over there thank you
2: uh, yes hi Chris uh, uh, on the ultra processed food subject I just happened to be working at the Excel last week because you know there's this thing called the mouth and yesterday and as you know all the food vendors you, you go out for your break and it's all sort sort of like fast food stuff. And I I took an early break. My friend was there, you know, and uh, I got this thing called uh, a halloumi sort of like bagel and it looked like slop, and it actually tasted like slop, but I was so hungry. But there was absolutely nowhere in that building where you could get anything healthy. And, it, and what's worse is, because you're sort of working on the desk and everything, they, they come round with treats later, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, your Jaffa cakes, your crisps, your chocolates and all that. And it's all junk, and you know it's junk, but you know you've got to keep going, so... It's the it's only event
1: What was your name, sorry? Melanie. Melanie. And Melanie, did you
2: say this was linked to the London Marathon? Well, um, they were, I, I was working. Uh, it, it, the, the vendors weren't, but they were at the Excel. You know, okay, they were okay. At the Excel the Excel and Excel, yeah. You have to eat something, either that or you bring your own food. Well, most of the time I did, but on the Saturday, there was absolutely no time and it was just awful.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what you're describing is a really normal experience, and I like your, the sort of coincidence of, of athletics. And junk food, because the, the food industry has been really, really skillful at positioning themselves as a kind of energy industry, and so Coke have done this this brilliantly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, changing institutional food, I don't know if that would extend to the Excel, but changing the expectation around the food we're given would be really useful, I think. And I don't. It's complicated, Susan Jeb who's a professor of nutrition at Oxford, said the other day that you know, office cake was, was, was kind of the villain, and she was pilloried for this. But I think many people who live with diet-related disease would very much like there to not be office cake. Office cake is a very frequent obligation, uh, and it's quite hard to say no to, and the vending machines. So I don't know. There's this conflict between nanny nannying people and actually just creating an environment where it's easy for people to not eat No, but it's funny
2: about you saying people feeling hungry, you've either got the urge or you haven't. Well, my friend who sort of like ran the marathon yesterday, she didn't have any sort of lunch. How she managed to get... She she ate well in the evening, but how she managed to get round on water, Lucozade and jelly babies in five and a half hours is remarkable.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Very good for her. Anyway, thank you, Melanie. We totally disagree on office cake. Um, Yes, we have a question over there. Hello, Chris.
1: Um, I loved your mother's explanation of uh, what advice is, and I recently saw a great comedian, Lou Sanders, and she said a very similar thing, which is that unwanted advice is just the sunny side of control. Yes, Um, I love that. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Now, as somebody who struggled with weight myself and who gets lots of advice, um, I was fascinated to hear what you said about this sort of hands-off or more hands-off approach um, and how psychologically you and your brother, might have, you, you might have seen that you or he'd lost against you and things like that. Um, so I wondered whether you, know, you see this more as a situation of, of, of how we actually relate to each other and with food um, within whatever setting we've got, family, friends, whatever. So, if I can give a slightly lateral answer, one of the things that people, including contributors in the book, have said to me is, I don't eat because of ultra-processed food. I eat because of trauma, I eat because of my emotions, I eat because of stress, Uh, and and those come from lots of different places. And my response to that, and this, I think, speaks to your question, is that trauma and poverty and uh, stress manifest in all kinds of different ways. We know that people who live in poverty or with stress smoke a lot more. So one of the ways that can manifest is increased smoking. If you get rid of poverty, you get rid of about 60% of smoking, possibly even more, more like 70%. And so ultra-processed food is just one of the ways we can commodify uh, the inequality in our society and, and, and turn disadvantage into even more money for the people who own these companies. And so I think... The way we relate to each other will drive consumption of the food. The food is still the problem, and we shouldn't be too distracted from that. And taking some of your frustration at the person who's nagging you out of love, or taking some of your frustration at the person who isn't responding to your nagging, and directing that toward the policymakers who fail to regulate these companies, uh, the companies who put the vending machines at your work, to all the companies who make the food, to redirecting that frustration and, and rage at them. And going from being victim to being activist is quite, quite an important journey. I, mean, I, I feel very uncomfortable advising people how to go on that journey, but I have tried to write something maybe that would be useful to people in that regard.
3: Yeah, I think you do. I think you give information. That's the, the thing, isn't it? You're not saying do this, you're saying here's information and then you can also go off and you can research more into it if you want as well. You know, I think that's, that's a, a useful book when it's not giving you the rules but it's allowing you to start thinking about what rules you yourself can create. Maybe people want... Quite often people just are like, yeah, right, I can't be bothered to read your book, tell
1: me what to do. And I, I, But any, anyone who's had therapy has had this experience. If you go to your therapist and you say, look, just solve my problem, and they go, well, what do you think the problem really is? You go, like, well, I, you know, and then you figure out the problem, and then you say, okay, so what should I do? And they go, well, what do you think you should do? And that's... Mm. that's, And then you... Because we're all the microanthropologists of our own lives. We can't... We, no one else can really understand our own context, but they can
3: reflect it back at us. Anyway. Do we have another question? Oh, yes, we've got, we got loads of questions over on, on this side, and loads at the front, as we want to get a chance. Yes.
2: yes. When you were on the ultra-processed diet, apart from putting on weight, how else did it affect your body and your mental functions?
1: (laughs) This feels like a stitch-up question. Um, (laughs) uh, What was your name, sorry? Camilla. Camilla. Um, So, I think... I notice with my kids that they'll get... I have a five-year-old and a a two-year-old, and they're often very unable to locate the reason that they are angry or upset you know we've all seen this in children and quite often it's because they're hungry but they'll be screaming about some other thing that you've done and I'm not really different to that so while I was on the diet I became incredibly angry and anxious but it never felt like it was the food the food felt like the solution to that problem and there were lots of reasons that might have been causing that I work a bit too hard and I have young children. They were younger when I was on the diet. Uh, and I got in this vicious cycle because the, you'd, you'd eat the food late at night, you'd overeat, you'd overload with salt, you'd drink more water. And I, you know, men of my age start, I, 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 I need to pee more at night anyway, so I was getting up four or five times a night to pee. You get very constipated, so you develop piles, which you misdiagnose because you think you've got bumworms from your kids. <laughs> and then you're. And, and you're, you're a doctor. And then you i am specifically a, a worm doctor. Yeah. Um, and then you realise your wife isn't scratching their bum, and it is just piles. Uh, and uh, and so the piles keep you up, and you you're you're then you're exhausted during the day, so you're snacking more, uh, and you get in this, this vicious cycle. And essentially, I just aged ten years. I became you know, so I, I I work as a as an infectious diseases doctor at UCH. And my patients, all ha- of, of in their 50s, all have the same suite of. They might come to me with some specific infection, but they all have, you know, digestive problems, stomach ulcers. Uh, they're cranky. They don't sleep. They pee too often. You know, there's a there's a there's a set of uh, of problems that you realise. Oh, right, being in your mid 50s, maybe almost entirely all that that sort of stuff we accept as being normal, is actually just due to the, the food we're eating. So yeah, there was this, and the main thing was, the second I stopped eating it, within 24 hours, I I quit the food completely, and it was like this sort of weight was lifted, and I slept at night. I I am still carrying quite a lot of the excess weight from the diet, that has not come off magically, but it is, it has continued to come off, and it, it started to come off quicker now that I really almost completely don't ever eat any ultra-processed food. That's not advice I would give to everyone. I would say if you struggle with it, abstinence may be helpful, but many people might need to treat it a bit more like booze, where instead of having a bottle of wine every night, you just have a bottle of wine on a Friday night. You know, that, that's the relationship many of you might prefer. And
3: uh, we've got another
1: question over there. Yes, from the front. What's your name?
2: Aisha. Aisha? Um, I always think I have two questions. What do you think is the, is the biggest cause of all of this? Like, what,
1: what's the biggest cause of all this?
2: Like, who's to blame? Who would you say is to blame? Oh,
1: this, this is the best question. No one is going to ask a better question than this. Um, uh, what's your second question, Aisha? Can I batch them?
2: How do you think schools are affected? Like, for example, school lunches.
1: Do you watch Operation Ouch?
2: Yes. Brilliant.
1: Um, thank you, Asia. So who is to blame is, 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 is kind of the most important problem. And as I say, when, when I went and spoke to the boss of this ice cream company, and I was like, why can't you change? And he said, well, I can't change because I'm answerable to my board, and my board are answerable to these people who control all this money. And if we don't do what they say, we all just lose our jobs, and they replace us with people who will. So they could be principled, but the ice cream would stay the same. So I think the people to blame are the people in our government, and I don't mean specifically this conservative government. This is a problem that's been growing since the 90s, since well before you were born, since before I went to medical school. It's the people in governments who partner with the industry that causes the problem. So you you cannot cause and solve a problem at the same time. And if you become a scientist or... A doctor or, or someone who is trying to solve problems in the world, Aisha, the most important thing is that you don't take money from people who cause the problems that you are trying to solve. Because when we take money from the food industry, we become an extension of the marketing division of the food industry. If you take money from tobacco, you become an extension of the cigarette industry. So the people to blame are the people who can make choices, they are typically the politicians and the doctors. So there are some doctors who've Taken a lot of money from food companies, and they, they didn't need to do that. And actually, when you're a doctor, if you become a doctor, you say, oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to, my only interest is helping the people who are sick that I treat. And if you're taking money from other people, it becomes very hard to do that. Uh, school, how are schools school affected? These questions are so good. Um, schools affected because I suspect, where, go- where do you go to school? In London? Yeah. So almost all of the food that you are served at school is likely to be ultra processed. Now you might be at a couple of very fancy schools in Hackney where Henry Dimbleby's pals, um, you know, Henry Dimbleby's got like the chef from Ottolenghi to make all your food. Are you, are you, at, a, are you at a school in Hackney? No. So and my daughter's at a school in Hackney and everything she eats at school is, is ultra processed. So changing the food in our prisons and our hospitals and our government buildings, hospitals for doctors and patients, would be a really important early step because you will, you will learn better and think better if you eat real food and you will learn, we can teach all of your curriculum, we can teach all of science and all of culture and all of history by using food as the, as the teaching vehicle. So that's, that's how you're affected and you, sh- you must go back to your school and say, why are we eating ultra-processed food? Aisha, thank you. What a lovely question. Thank you.
3: <laughs> Let's take another question over there. We've got five minutes left, I think. Yes.
1: Sorry, so I'll try and be brief. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm not I'll prone
2: try and be to brief bread, as this. well. Hi, I'm Ruth. Um, I'm a food scientist. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Isn't it? No, no, it is. I'm joking. Recently, I was at the International Food Exhibition, and i have been there pre-pandemic, um, and it goes from big kit
1: all the way down to lots of food manufacturers and this year it had
2: gone from being you know the two vegetarian stalls out by the toilets to 60% was plant based and my fear is it's ultra processed plant based foods yeah and that's it and it's all in
1: lovely green packaging and healthy and and my assumption is of course it's not going to be but that's where i think the drives they're trying to come in through the left hand door so, and um, just so, about the, your so the question on is, like the, all, you know, the, the huge range of new plant-based meats that we're seeing and, and, and vegan products, are they ultra-processed and, and what should we make of that? This is something I kind of deliberately sidestep in the book because I wanted a cover quote from George Monbiot, um, which I didn't get. Uh, the, the, it, it, I sidestep it a bit because I don't quite know how to deal with this. They are unquestionably ultra-processed products um, they are almost certainly not good for our health, although we don't have very much data. They appear not to be. They're probably worse than eating real meat, uh, and yet they will be much, much better for the planet than eating eating a steak. So, um, yes, I think I think this is going to be this this contested space where the food industry are going to sort of use environmentalism as a way of selling us uh, very addictive products, and um, there are really wonderful vegan. I mean we shouldn't sort of single out that category food because there's loads of wonderful vegan food that's very high in protein and it's brilliant and um, it comes from all over the world and it's it, but it's not necessarily easy to cook so yes, i'm afraid they're not good for your health, but they probably are a bit better from the planet not it 's not entirely clear they're that much better from the planet because they're made more or less from repurposed waste from animal food so they are they are a byproduct of the animal food system right so it's it's that you're not really you're 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 sort of buying a different product from a cigarette company, if you like. It's you're still you're still paying into the same food system. So, yeah.
3: <laughs> Should it be labelled like cigarettes? <laughs> These are the seeds. Of I totally agree, and green, aren't they? I totally uh, agree. And this could be our final question. Yes, just over there.
2: Hi. As an underweight person, do you have any recommendations for eating food like healthily but also gaining weight? What's your name? Oh,
1: great, Merlin like the wizard. Um, uh, if you eat m- most... So, so I've got to be a bit careful here because I'm going I'm to lapse into giving uh, medical advice that I'm not insured to give. You, you may not live at a... There are plenty of people who don't live at a healthy BMI who are healthy. So you might... I can't tell by looking at you. Uh, you might actually be a completely healthy person. You're, you're a bit below the BMI thing. But if you eat um, real food to appetite... Uh, and you're well, and you can move around in your day, I I wouldn't be too hidebound by what the BMI number is. So BMI is is a population measurement tool. It's not not a thing we all need to live by. In fact, as BMI goes up, there's not a linear relationship with ill health. So as you get a little bit into overweight, there are some health benefits to being a bit overweight that we're not quite sure. And It's it's very indistinct with different uh, minority groups as well. So my suggestion to anyone who can afford it and wants to do it is that if you can just eat uh, real food, uh, which comprises processed food, and you eat what you want, when you want, that you will probably be fine. And Merlin, you look a bit younger than me, so that's probably particularly true of you. You're 18, yeah. And it, well, I won't, I won't start asking you about your health. I mean, if there's a specific thing, or you can't do something, or you're struggling, you know, there's, a, there's a problem, you need to see a physician about that. But if you're a well person and you're slim, you know, that's fine. Not to be
3: celebrated, but that's just you. Thank you very much, everyone, for your questions. And uh, by the way, the final thing I want to know, um, Lara and Sasha, your children, they must have had a great time when you were on this diet because it seems that not only... That you just said, well, I wonder how Cocoa Pops affects a three-year-old. Let's just put them in front of the Cocoa Pops. And she yeah. just stuffs her face while you take notes. Um, I mean, my kids eat a lot of UPF because I want them
1: to be... Normal, and I try and just I keep them a bit hungry after school and shove huge bowls of vegetables. They get their vegetables first when they're hungry and they'll eat them out of boredom while they watch ultra-processed telly. Um, <laughs> but they get, they get, you know, there's lots of junk in my house. But it's for them and for Dinah, they don't struggle with it. So they treat it like, a, like treats and they, they have it. I, I feel that for me, abstinence is the thing that works for me, but I'm not, I'm not preaching
3: that. Well, they just sound like It's a lovely amount of cocoa pops in chapter one. Um, thank you very much uh, to the How To Academy. Thank you very much, everyone, who's come down. Chris is going to be out front signing books, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, I will. Yeah, Thank you for coming. Thank you very thank much, you. Chris Van Tuleken.
0: This episode starred Chris Van Tuleken and was presented by Robin Ince. The producers were Nicole Wong and Esme Bright, and the editor was John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show, please do rate us, review us, and subscribe. Right here where you're listening now. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for
2: listening.